Well, thank you very much, Gordon. It's great to be back with you all. I think this is my third time at this round table, but you used to be over at Fort McNair. The last time I was here, you were at Fort McNair. So you've just changed venues. And it's, uh, I always am grateful for a turnout this large for a Civil War talk. I'm particularly pleased to have two other friends in the audience today, my old colleague, Kim Holian. We go back to the 70s, I hate to say it, Kim, working on history. It's great to see you again. And I don't know if you all know Hampton Newsom. You should. Uh, Hampton is the author of several excellent books, including a spectacular book on the 6th Petersburg Offensive, which is the October actions north of the James and along the Boyden Plank Road. And he just has a brand new book out on the Civil War in North Carolina in the early months of 1864. I think he'd make a great speaker for you all, too. So thanks for coming, Hampton. Well, as Gordon said, people know something about Petersburg. My experience is that probably the least known of the major eastern offensives, eastern campaigns. A lot of people will say, yeah, Petersburg. Well, there was the crater, and then there was Five Forks, and then there was Appomattox. But uh, as Gordon says, there's 292 days of it. And tonight we're going to talk about perhaps the least understood of the major battles major offensives around Petersburg. But our story begins a little bit earlier. That field became a seething hell, remembered Federal Sergeant George Coffin. They poured it into us from the front, from the right, and from the left. You ought to have seen us kill them, boasted an Alabaman in Gracie's brigade. A soldier in the 6th Georgia thought the slaughter was equal to Cold Harbor. These men were describing the attack on June 18, 1864, where the first main heavy artillery came across an open cornfield on the afternoon of June 18, and this was an assault that resulted in the largest single regimental loss that any unit suffered in the entire Civil War. 632 men in 10 minutes. Now, these unfortunate men belonged to the Second Corps of the Army of the Potomac, commanded by Major General Winfield Scott Hancock, seated there, surrounded by his division commanders. Hancock's soldiers had often received the most important and deadly combat assignments during the campaign that began on May 4th, the Overland Campaign. At Petersburg, they led the assaults against the Confederates on June 16th and participated heavily again on June 18th, culminating in the disastrous attack of the 1st Maine Heavy Artillery. The Corps had suffered about 19,700 casualties since they had crossed the Rapidan River in early May, including many of its best men and best officers. In short, the Army of the Potomac's premier corps suffered severely reduced numbers, diminished competence, and lessening morale, factors that would become apparent during Grant's next offensive at Petersburg. Now, the Union assaults between June 15th and 18th are collectively known as the First Petersburg Offensive. These engagements are relatively well known. Many of the scenes of action are preserved within Petersburg National Battlefield, but less familiar are the actions that occurred between June 21st and July 1st. 
These initiatives involving a two-core infantry offensive and one of the war's most extensive cavalry raids are collectively known as Grant's Second Offensive and are the subject of my talk this evening. At the conclusion of the First Offensive, Army Commander George Gordon Meade confided to General Grant that, quote, I found it a source of great regret that I am unable to report more success. Grant, however, withheld any criticism. I am perfectly satisfied, said the General-in-Chief, that all has been done that could be done, and that the assaults today were called for by all the appearances and information that could be obtained. Grant then advised Meade that now we will rest the men and use the spade for the protection until a new vein can be struck. This promise of inactivity and static warfare lasted all of 36 hours. Grant's change of heart began on the morning of June 20th when he and Meade learned of the arrival of Phil Sheridan's two cavalry divisions at White House Landing on the Pamunkey River following Sheridan's unsuccessful raid that culminated at Trevilian Station on June 11th and 12th. Sheridan received orders to move to Petersburg, thus unleashing the rest of the Federal Cavalry to conduct a raid that would target the three railroads that led into Petersburg. And those railroads were the Petersburg Railroad, which most of you know as the Weldon Railroad, but its real name was the Petersburg Railroad, running south into North Carolina. The Southside Railroad, running west to Lynchburg, and the Richmond and Danville Railroad that was the only one of the major Confederate supply lines that did not first go through Petersburg to reach the Confederate capital. Obviously, by breaking these transportation routes, Robert E. Lee's forces around Petersburg and Richmond would be deprived of the materiel required to sustain them and thus compel the abandonment of their positions around Petersburg and Richmond. James Wilson's Division of Cavalry from the Army of the Potomac and August Kautz's small division from the Army of the James would comprise the conduct of the raid. Meade warned Grant that moving Sheridan to the Petersburg area would allow the Confederate mounted arm under Wade Hampton to ride south and potentially menace Wilson and Kautz. In part to neutralize this threat and to expand the concept of isolating the Army of Northern Virginia, Grant decided to send the Second Corps and the Sixth Corps westward to capture and hold both the Petersburg and Weldon Railroads and the Southside Railroad, extending the Union perimeter all the way to the Appomattox River. Now in hindsight, this concept of sending only two Army Corps to completely engulf Petersburg bordered on the geographically ludicrous as the distance between the Union left and the Appomattox River uh, beyond the Confederate defenses approached eight miles. But the impracticality of this endeavor escaped the Union High Command at the time. The men who would be responsible for executing this risky movement enjoyed a mixed reputation at best. Now on June 18th, General Hancock had reported himself unable to remain in the field due to the festering of his old Gettysburg wound. His place was taken by this man, David Bell Burney, 
Uh, the 39-year-old Bernie had risen to division command of the 2nd Corps despite the absence of a West Point education. His father, James G. Bernie, had been a presidential candidate on the Liberty Party ticket, and his son's abolition credentials and his great ambition helped him rise through the Army's volunteer hierarchy. A Philadelphia lawyer, Bernie organized a Pennsylvania regiment at the outset of the war, and using his political influence, attained division command in less than a year. Bernie impressed most observers with his intelligence and capacity to learn military principles, but some perceived an unflattering degree of personal ambition and a lack of combat aggressiveness. We all like General Bernie, but he is not able to handle so large a command just yet, thought one of his officers upon Bernie's ascension to Corps command. The Sixth Corps had been led by Major General Horatio Wright since May the 9th, when the Corps' beloved commander, John Sedgwick, fell victim to a sharpshooter at Spotsylvania. Forty-four years old and a native of Connecticut, Wright graduated second in his West Point class in 1841. He verged on six feet tall and, according to a witness, wore a rounded face of florid hue with puffy cheeks and bulging forehead, had brown locks which, if licensed to grow, would vie with Hyperion's, for the tendency to curl was there. As it was, they were more luxuriant than his poverty of mustache and goatee, both of which were of a lighter shade. Wright earned the reputation of being a skilled engineer, but as a combat commander, his prowess had yet to be established. A shortcoming, the second offensive, would do little to cure. The soldiers do not like Wright very well, admitted a man in the 37th Massachusetts. James Harrison Wilson assumed control of the cavalry arm of the operation. Not yet 27 years old, Wilson had risen from a staff position under Grant at Vicksburg to command the Cavalry Bureau and then the head of one of Sheridan's cavalry divisions. He was the junior brigadier in the entire cavalry corps. In personal appearance, he is not remarkable, mused a newspaperman, but he is the best horseman in the Army. Wilson's performance during the Overland Campaign suggested that he was still learning his craft, but his vast personal ambition meant that he would never hesitate to accept any assignment that would advance his career, and leading the proposed raid would be right up his alley. The second offensive would be his first foray into independent command. August Valentine Couts would be Wilson's junior partner during the operation. Couts led the small cavalry division in Ben Butler's Army of the James. Born in Germany, Couts grew up in Ohio, volunteered for service in the Mexican War, and graduated with an undistinguished rank at West Point in 1852. He was posted to the Pacific Northwest, where reputedly he was the first man to climb Mount Rainier. And he rose from a junior officer status in the 6th U.S. Cavalry to lead the 2nd Ohio Cavalry in the Western Theater, and then came east in 1864 to lead Butler's horsemen. Couch required close supervision and suffered from bouts of malaria, 
that would incapacitate him for long periods of time and was, at best, a mediocre leader. By the summer of 1864, of course, as you all know, the Union cavalry was well along in the process of establishing itself as superior to its Confederate counterparts. But Wilson and Coutts were not instrumental figures in this evolution. Now the second offensive began on the evening of June 20th as the 2nd and 6th Corps pulled out of the Union line south and east of Petersburg and headed west. So here we have Wright and Bernie with the 6th and 2nd Corps leaving their positions along the Union siege lines and heading west. The Army's other corps, which is to say the 5th Corps and the 9th Corps, closed up to cover the gaps left by Bernie and Wright. Now, elements of Butler's army would head for the third aspect of the second offensive, which we're not really going to talk about. That was an effort to establish a beachhead on the north side of the James River at a place called Deep Bottom. On the morning of the 21st, June 21st, Bernie had his 21,000 men heading west of the Jerusalem Plank Road. Now the Jerusalem Plank Road is this highway here that is running due south out of Petersburg and for which there is no accompanying railroad. Encountering harassment from Rufus Berenger's North Carolina Cavalry in this area here, and elements of Cadmus Marcellus Wilcox's infantry division. Wilcox is coming down here from the Confederate lines. The Second Corps settled down in a dense, scrubby forest extending from the Plank Road west for a little less than a mile. Bernie ordered his men to erect works, although the thick tree cover limited his field of fire. James B. Ricketts' division led the Sixth Corps march and there you see Ricketts to the left of the Second Corps, followed by the Corps' other two divisions, Wheaton and Russell. By nightfall, the Federal alignment was from east to west. John Gibbon's division, with its right flank anchored on the Jerusalem Plank Road, followed by Gershom Mott's brigade, Francis Barlow's divisions, and Ricketts with the Sixth Corps divisions of David Russell and Frank Wheaton lagging behind. Meanwhile, Wilson's orders arrived that morning, instructing him to depart on his raid before dawn on the 22nd. He was told to move by the shortest routes to the junction of the South Side and Richmond and Danville lines at a place called Burkeville Junction, and destroy those roads to the greatest extent possible, continuing their destruction until driven from it by such attacks of the enemy as you can no longer resist. Those were his orders. Wilson dutifully acknowledged receipt of those orders, but obtained Meade's approval to stop en route along the Southside Railroad to tear up that line. Wilson also raised the sensible question of his safe return to the Army. And if you know anything about cavalry raids in the Civil War, going out is not the problem. It's coming back that is usually the doom of cavalry raids. And Meade confidently assured him that the movement of the 2nd and 6th Corps would place infantry across both the Petersburg and Southside Railroads by the night of the 22nd, 
and therefore he would have all the help he would need to counter an attempt by Confederate cavalry to impede his trip home. Couch received his orders to join Wilson on June 20th, and his two brigades left their camps at Bermuda 100 at dawn the next day. By mid-morning, they began to arrive at Wilson's bivouac near a place called Mount Sinai Church in Prince George County. Now, June 22nd dawned cloudy and humid with the promise of another scorching summer day. Incidentally, the temperatures during this week are going to be in the upper 90s every day around Petersburg. At dawn, both Bernie and Wright moved out intending to execute Grant's orders to reach the Appomattox River. But they quickly discovered that absent total rebel acquiescence, it would be impossible to do so while maintaining an unbroken line with the Fifth Corps whose left flank was anchored there on the Jerusalem Plank Road. That's, of course, Warren, right here. Both Corps commanders quickly realized the fantasy of their mission and their actions that day would reflect this understanding. Bernie hoped to coordinate his shift to the west with Wright to avoid creating a vulnerable gap between their two corps. And almost immediately, Bernie grasped that doing so bordered on the impossible due to the rugged terrain and the inherent cautiousness of General Wright, who advanced at the snail's pace in the trackless terra incognita. Meade grew frustrated at the lack of progress in a mood characterized by one of his staff officers as exceedingly snappy, and told Francis Barlow, leading the Second Corps shift, to concentrate on maintaining contact with Mott on his right, and that, quote, each corps must look out for itself. The stage was now set for what one Second Corps regimental commander would call the saddest day ever experienced by the Second Corps. Bernie's men advanced no more than 1,200 yards westward before halting and digging hasty works in, quote, woods more dense and continuous than any encountered since the wilderness. And of course, as is the case in so many Civil War battlefields, the ground cover has changed dramatically and when you go and visit these places today, if they're not built up in subdivisions, they're completely devoid of trees. But you have to imagine a very trackless wilderness out there. Barlow, on the Corps' left, deployed the Irish Brigade. And that's the Irish Brigade under a fellow named Richard Maroney at that time. On his far left, facing, and the rest of the, the line faced to the north, as you can see on the map. Wright's divisions lacked far behind to the south. And here are Wright's divisions, Wheaton, Ricketts, and Russell, quite a distance away. Confederate cavalry promptly reported the westward movement of the Union infantry, and two of A.P. Hill's divisions responded. Wilcox's brigades moved due south along the Petersburg Railroad. And here comes Wilcox. Encountering Ricketts' advanced troops, the South Carolina Brigade under James Connor and Georgians under Thomas Jefferson Simmons, these two units right here, met the tepid Union thrust and drove it back, later bringing up the remaining two brigades, that's James Lane's and Alfred Scales' brigades here. All the rebels stopping and digging in, satisfied that they had discharged Hill's orders to protect the railroad. Now the main protagonist on the Confederate side this day would not be Wilcox. It would be this man, William Mahone. 
37 years old, a native of Southside, Virginia, a VMI graduate, the developer of the Norfolk and Petersburg Railroad, where he named the various depots after characters in the Waverly novels by Sir Walter Scott, Mahone's record as the commander of a Virginia brigade, including the 12th Virginia, which was Petersburg's local regiment, composed of men from the entire Petersburg area, had been, frankly, pedestrian. But when casualties elevated him to division command during the Overland Campaign, Mahone began to shine. Short, spare, and long-bearded, always in gray slouch hat and peg-top trousers, eyes blue and restless, voice thin and piping, Mahone barely weighed 110 pounds. When told that the general had received a wound early in the war, that was a flesh wound only, his wife reacted, it must be a serious hurt, William has no flesh. <laughs> Mahone's performance on June 22nd and 23rd would begin Lee's habit at Petersburg of using Mahone's division as his Petersburg shock troops. Although Mahone would claim that he was the one who saw Bernie's deployment, uh, perhaps the credit belongs to General Lee. But regardless, Lee told Mahone to take three of his brigades and drive back the three divisions of the Second Corps. Three brigades versus three divisions. Mahone selected his Alabama brigade under John C.C. C. Sanders, his Georgia brigade that day commanded by Colonel William Gibson, and his old Virginia brigade, commanded now by Petersburg native David Wissiger. Utilizing a deep ravine drained by a Appomattox River tributary called Lieutenant Run to conceal his approach and accompanied by one section of artillery, at 3 p.m. Mahone was in position. And here he is. Here are his three brigades. He located the seam between Barlow's left and Russell's right and poured through that gap, almost instantly sending the surprise defenders from the Irish Brigade and their supports under Clinton McDougall, quote, running for the rear, some regiments of the Corps seemed paralyzed and the men dashing in every direction. Barlow stated that the destruction of his division took place without any warning to me and entirely unexpectedly. It was over in a few minutes. Turning east, Mahone's juggernaut now targeted Mott's division, and one by one, Mott's brigades fell like dominoes. Confederates mowed the thick underbrush with their bullets like they would with a scythe, and yelled like demons to us to surrender, remembered one northerner. The whole brigade ran like sheep. Despite suffering casualties and exhaustion, Mahone's momentum carried him into the last of Bernie's divisions, that of John Gibbon. So they've come all the way through almost the entire Second Corps. Three of Gibbon's brigades, along with an entire New York battery, the first guns the Second Corps had ever lost in combat, crumbled, leaving only one of Gibbon's brigades intact. But by this time, Mahone's energy had run out of steam and bloodied and disorganized by the magnitude of his victory, he began a retreat. He sent for his Mississippi Brigade under Nathaniel Harris, and here comes Harris, 
to establish a fallback position, and that's where the rest of his division rallied. Mahone brought with him 1,742 prisoners, 2,000 small arms, eight battle flags, and the four captured three-inch rifles, in addition to inflicting an undetermined number of killed and wounded, all at the cost of only 600 casualties. Mahone's three brigades had routed virtually an entire Union Corps in one of the most remarkable infantry attacks that you've never heard of, of the entire Civil War. Meanwhile, Hill sent orders to Wilcox to detach two of his brigades to the north, moving evidently in position to reinforce Mahone, leaving the other two brigades to entertain Wright. Wilcox, when he heard the sound of Mahone's guns, began to move north sometime between 4 and 5 o'clock, and he began to move back to the rally point. Now, great controversy, I won't go into this, but there was a tremendous amount of ink spilled between Mahone and Wilcox as to what happened. Mahone claiming that Wilcox refused to come to his aid. But in any event, Wilcox would arrive back at the main Confederate line by nightfall. Ricketts and Russell reacted to Wilcox's departure by advancing in what is now the gathering gloom, scattering the few men that Wilcox left behind as a screen, but this modest achievement could not disguise the disastrous results of June 22nd. David Burney explained, quote, I attribute the failure to the extraordinary loss among the commanding, staff, and other officers of this command to the large proportion of new troops assigned to this corps to replace veterans, to the fact that the Sixth Corps did not advance simultaneously, and that in consequence my line was taken in flank, and it points in reverse, creating a panic. Many rank-and-file soldiers blamed their commanders, especially Bernie and Barlow, and averred that had Hancock been present, none of this would have happened. Now, despite this overwhelming tactical victory Mahone achieved on June 22nd, the Petersburg Railroad still remained within striking distance of the Federals. Even though Grant's larger objective of encircling Petersburg had proven a pipe dream, the capture of the Petersburg Railroad part of that direct link running through North Carolina to the only functioning Confederate port on the Atlantic at Wilmington would represent, if captured, a major achievement. The Second Corps had been so badly damaged on June 22nd that it attempted and achieved almost nothing on June 23rd. So the focus would switch to Wright's Sixth Corps. Now Wright's day started at 4.30 a.m. with a visit from Meade who encouraged his subordinate to uh, demonstrate more moxie than he had shown thus far in the offensive. Wright's divisions had deployed with Ricketts on the left, Russell on the right, and Wheaton in general reserve. Meade departed Wright's command post at 7 a.m., but his admonitions apparently made a limited impression on the ever-cautious Wright. The Corps commander only committed a small band of sharpshooters from the 3rd Vermont to advance. But these few men managed to reach the tracks unimpeded, prompting Wright to dispatch a group of pioneers, supported by the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, to tear up the tracks. Brigadier General Lewis A. Grant, no relation, commanding the Vermont Brigade in Wheaton's division, added about 200 men of his own 11th Vermont, otherwise known as the 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery, to the group, and they took position facing north 
toward a prospective Confederate approach, extending a gossamer thin line to connect with the left flank of Ricketts' static brigades. This humble initiative had not gone unnoticed at Confederate headquarters, and Lee sent word to Hill to dislodge the Yankee Raiders. Naturally, Hill turned to Mahone, who allowed his weary brigades to rest during the morning, but had them on the march by noon. Aided by six guns and a brigade from Henry Heath's division, Mahone led perhaps 3,000 men south parallel to the railroad. Taking position west of the tracks and concealed in the woods, Mahone was again ready at 3 p.m. Now, despite Little Billy's efforts to keep his approach secret, Union signal stations had spotted the large dust clouds on the sky indicating a significant movement of troops. Meade sent Wright repeated messages to meet the threat and assume the offensive. But Wright reinforced his tiny contingent along the railroad with only 200 more men from the 11th Vermont. Lewis Grant recognized the peril and rode to Division Commander Wheaton and then to Wright imploring these officers to send him help. Both of them demurred, discounting the danger and confident that should the rebels advance, the Vermonters could easily retire to Ricketts' line. But neither Wheaton nor Wright realized that a gap had opened between the 1,000 men near the railroad and the left flank of Ricketts' supporting division. And you can see, I think, the problem here. In essence, the advanced contingent of Federals had formed a hollow square with all of their flanks exposed. And Mahone did not miss the opportunity to exploit these isolated and vulnerable Yankees. About 4.30, the diminutive Virginian sent his Virginia and Florida brigades around the Federal left here, and his Georgians and Mississippians around the Federal right. And the result was predictable. The Yanks ran pell-mell strewing the ground with guns, accoutrements, knapsacks, haversacks, and any other thing that might retard their progress, exulted the Georgian. Some of the Vermonters succeeded in flight, but most found themselves completely surrounded. Lewis Grant would remember June 23rd as, quote, as one of those sad events of which I have disliked to read or think about, and for good reason. The Sixth Corps lost 588 men that day, the vast majority of them prisoners from Grant's brigade, at a cost of only about 150 casualties for Mahone. As on the previous day, the rank and file blamed poor leadership for the disaster and noted that many of the subordinate officers were drunk. Private John B. Sothert of the 49th New York was not alone in blaming his corps commander. General Wright may be a good brigade general, but good for nothing to command a corps. And if they keep on with such generals, you can be assured there won't be no discipline in the whole army. Well, thus ended the infantry portion of Grant's second offensive. Now, the failed effort to surround the Army of Northern Virginia cost the Federals nearly 2,200 prisoners and many, many hundreds killed and wounded. Mahone and Wilcox combined suffered about 700 casualties. Three brigades of the Second Corps simply disappeared from the table of organization and morale in the Army of the Potomac sunk to a new low. Brigade Commander Nelson Miles observing that he did not think there was ever a campaign which tried men's power of endurance like the present one. Although Lee and Hill realized that their victory was merely tactical, 
exercising almost no impact on the strategic calculus around Petersburg. The victory convinced the average Confederate soldier of the invincibility of his cause. I think the prospects are brighter now for us than ever, wrote a Virginia artillerist, reflecting the opinion of most of the men in Lee's army. The cavalry component of Grant's second offensive would do nothing to alter that assessment. Now the infantry action of June 22nd and 23rd, frequently called the Battle of Jerusalem Plank Road, played out as Wilson's cavalry began what would be an unprecedented ordeal for the Union mounted arm. By 2 a.m. on June 22nd, some 5,500 troopers and three batteries boasting 12 guns prepared to leave their bivouac at Mount Sinai Church. Wilson had some nine regiments divided into two brigades commanded by Brigadier General John B. McIntosh and Colonel George H. Chapman. Coutts' two brigades under Colonels Robert M. West and Samuel Spear had only four regiments between them, the most colorful of which was the 1st District of Columbia Cavalry. Organized originally, quote, to serve as a kind of complex police spy bodyguard under the immediate eye of the renowned military humbugs who perambulated Washington like strutting turkey cocks, the regiment was comprised primarily of men from Maine who were, quote, more used to lying out on a topsail yard in a gale than mounting a horse. Their lack of horsemanship was almost comical, and as they started on the raid that dark morning, a veteran found it, quote, amusing to see the different positions the sailor lads would place themselves in. The forage sacks would wobble and flap and bounce until the grain sprayed and showered so systematically as to have made a grain-sowing inventor hide himself in despair. A portable gristmill under sail at the stern of the 1st D.C. Cavalry Regiment that day might have done the biggest business on the smallest capital of any mill in the country. Another soldier noted that, quote, my chum, who had followed the sea for eight or ten years, swore that Richard might have given his kingdom for a horse, but he would give a month's pay for a pillow. <coughs> the column rode south and intersected the Petersburg Railroad at a hamlet called Reams Station. You'll recall that Meade's original orders instructed Wilson to head directly for the junction at Burkeville, but he had allowed Wilson to add a stop along the Southside Railroad to inflict some damage. This Wilson did that night at Ford Station, Ford's Depot on the Southside Railroad, burning buildings, capturing several locomotives, and cars filled with supplies. Both men and horses bivouacked that night, dirty, hungry, tired, and almost worn out, wrote Wilson. But success had made everybody enthusiastic and confident. While Wilson's detour, no matter how gratifying, allowed the available Confederate cavalry, which was two small brigades under William Henry Fitzhugh, Rudy Lee, brigades led by James Deering and Rufus Berenger, to catch up with the Federal Raiders. While Wilson played havoc at Ford, Kaus, however, had ridden forward to Burkeville Junction on the 23rd, laying waste to several miles of both Richmond and Danville and South Side lines. Meanwhile, Wilson's brigades were on the, in the saddle early that morning, and following the Southside Railroad West, stopped near Nottaway Courthouse as a place known locally as the Grove. 
Here, Lee and his gray-clad troopers, having followed a shortcut suggested by former Confederate Brigadier General Roger Pryor, now serving as a mere cavalry courier, interjected themselves between Counts and Wilson, precipitating the first of four distinct battles that defined the Wilson-Counts raid. Deering's 62nd Georgia Cavalry and his 7th Confederate States Cavalry made a dismounted charge, about 800 men, and launched an attack against Chapman's brigade, which was concealed in a cut of the Southside Railroad. Aided by Behringer's 2nd North Carolina Cavalry, the Confederates approached Chapman's line three times, each time reaching the railroad before being repulsed. The Federals then seized the initiative and moved forward, threatening to capture the Confederate artillery, which was supporting the dismounted cavalry assaults, and almost reached the guns before the rest of Behringer's brigade, these North Carolina regiments here, arrived on the field and bailed out the defeated men of Deering. Frantically shouting, save the guns, save the guns, Rooney Lee was relieved by Behringer's arrival, and the Federals retreated after spiking two of the Confederate pieces. Although the battle waxed and waned for several more hours, the major fighting ended, and as the case with most cavalry battles, the casualties were relatively modest. About 75 Federals and between 60 and 100 Rebels, killed or wounded, including the commander of the 2nd North Carolina Cavalry. Now the appearance of these suddenly aggressive Confederates prompted Couts to forego making a raid against a place you've probably heard of in Civil War history, the famous High Bridge over the Appomattox River near Farmville. And he decided instead to move southwest along the Richmond and Danville line here. So he moves from Burkeville Junction down this line here. And you see that Wilson will move from the Battle of the Grove, go cross country, and join up with Couts at a depot called Meharan Station. Every foot of the road was destroyed between Meharan and Keysville, wrote one of the Federal troopers. In addition to savaging the railroad, Couts' men plundered the countryside. Whatever the smokehouse or the spring house or the field or garden or stall or pasture of a rebel contained, which was capable of being readily converted into good food, was remorselessly appropriated without waiting for either commissary or quartermaster process, admitted one trooper. Now, this is, a, to me, a, one of those little things about war that makes it so distressing. Because as the federal horses begin to give out, uh, became too lame to continue, the riders would shoot them to prevent them from being used later by pursuing Confederates, replacing them with mounts that they had stolen along the way. From about 11 o'clock until dark, it sounded as though we were briskly skirmishing with the enemy, for I believe I am moderate indeed when I say we shot on average one horse every quarter of a mile. Eventually, the men opted to slit the jugular veins of their mounts uh, in order to save ammunition. A trickle of runaway slaves turned into a flood as the column moved on, the blacks risking all for their chance to accompany the Union Army to freedom. By nightfall of the 24th, 
Wilson and Coutts had united at the village of Keysville and prepared to continue their destruction the next day. And again, here's Keysville. The most important target on the Richmond and Danville Railroad was the 600-foot-long covered bridge that crossed the Roanoke or Stanton River just south of a depot called Roanoke Station, right here. The raiders moved down the tracks early in the morning of June 25th, continuing to destroy every facility along the railroad they encountered while enduring the blistering heat of another summer day. Little did they know that a makeshift Confederate force at the bridge was gathering in their front. And the leader of this motley collection of prison guards, convalescing regulars, militia, and boys from a nearby academy was this man, Captain Benjamin Farenholt of the 53rd Virginia, himself at home recovering from a wound. In a matter of just 36 hours, Farenholt had accumulated a force of between 938 and 1,238, depending on which source you believe, men to protect the bridge. My command was a heterogeneous mass, the rawest kind of recruits, from 14 to 20 and from 50 to 65 years of age, confessed the captain. He decided to make his primary defense north of the bridge, right in here. And he assigned a man named Henry Coleman, who himself was recovering from a serious head wound sustained at the Battle of the Bloody Angle at Spotsylvania, to put in charge of that defense. He had about 250 militia and home guards behind shallow works, both flanks anchored on the river, as you can see, and a log barricade across the tracks, loopholed and defended by about 20 men. The rest of the old men and young boys remained on the south bank, defending six pieces of artillery both above and below the bridge. Fahrenholt positioned two small bands of volunteer cavalry on his flanks, looking for efforts by the Federals to get around this barricade. Kautz's division led the blue-clad cavalry that afternoon, arriving on the hills overlooking this, the valley about 2 p.m., while Chapman's brigade skirmished with the rear guard of Behringer's Tar Heels, who did their best to harass the raiders. The tracks ran due south from a depot called Roanoke Station. And on the right, there was a wheat field. And on the left, a grassy pasture that reached almost to a man's shoulders. And the whole area, this map doesn't really show it, but the whole area in this vicinity was bisected by hedgerows and drainage ditches. Wilson opened the action with an artillery bombardment at maximum range from a place called Mulberry Hill, here. And Fahrenholt would run empty trains back and forth and have his men cheer to give the Yankees the impression that reinforcements were arriving. They worked on Coutts, and he saw this, and he recommended to General Wilson that they better leave well enough alone. But of course, Wilson would have none of it. I directed General Coutts to dismount his division and endeavor to push close enough to the end of the bridge to set fire to it, Wilson explained, as he ordered West to advance on the right and Spear on the left. Now, Kautz's men recognized a tough nut to crack when they saw it. The destruction of the bridge was very desirable, but was from the first a hopeless task 
with the means at our disposal, recalled a veteran of the 11th Pennsylvania Cavalry. If we could have only been able to have flanked them, I know we would have soon sent the home guards flying off to their legitimate business, that is, toward their homes, wrote a soldier in the second Ohio. But there was no other plan but dismount the men and try to carry the bridge by direct assault, and this was an undertaking as fully desperate as charging Marie's Hill. These predictions proved prescient, as each of the several attempts to storm the bridge met a withering fire from the determined defenders on both sides of the river. When we opened on them with canister, they were thrown into great confusion at once, wrote one of the cannoneers at the bridge. And in 20 minutes, we had them all in the ditch, about 100 yards from the bridge. We never permitted them to form again, and we kept them until darkness enabled them to retreat. Indeed, as Fahrenholtz defenders, Behringer's pursuers, and the relentless heat took their toll, Wilson reluctantly decided that progress on the raid had come to an end. Leaving as many as 300 casualties behind, Wilson moved east on the north side of the river, attempting to get back to Union lines, five counties distant. Now, Wilson the hunter became the prey. And I don't know if any of you have visited this battlefield. It's a state park in Virginia, and it is a pristine battlefield, the Stanton River Bridge State Historical Park. If you get a chance, it's in the middle of nowhere. You have to be wanting to go there, but it is a really great battlefield. Now, June 26th through 28th found the federal troopers battling this debilitating heat, worn out horses, and hunger, while a portion of Behringer's brigade continued to follow them, and Deering's brigade and the rest of the Tar Heels paralleled Wilson's progress to the north. Unknown to Wilson, Robert E. Lee, was doing his best to ensure that the Raiders would never make it back to Union lines. On June 26th, Lee ordered Brigadier General John R. Chambliss's brigade, the missing portion of Rooney Lee's division, to head for Stony Creek Depot on the Petersburg Railroad, 18 miles south of Petersburg. The following morning, Lee ordered Wade Hampton to move with his division to Stony Creek. As Meade had predicted, Hampton was no longer concerned with Sheridan's troopers who had crossed the James at the head of a cumbersome supply train. Fitz Lee's cavalry division would follow on June 28th, and Mars Robert once again called on William Mahone to reinforce his nephew's horsemen. These troops had the mission of blocking Wilson's inevitable attempt to recross the Petersburg Railroad en route to Union lines and hopefully destroy the raiders. Now, the Union High Command was made aware of the departure of this rebel cavalry, but neither Grant nor Meade appreciated the building crisis facing Wilson and Coutts. Meade simply ordered Sheridan to take position on the Army's left, an assignment Sheridan discharged with remarkable lack of urgency. Speculation was that Wilson had actually turned south, heading for the Union enclave at Newburn, North Carolina adding to the absence of his concern for safety, even as the Confederate trap began to close. On June 28th, around noon, the Federal column reached a crossing of the Nottoway River called Double Bridges. Double Bridges is right here. It exists today on a real back road. All of this you can tour. In fact, I'll be doing a tour of that in May. 
Here Wilson faced the most critical decision of his return ride as three roads led from there towards safety east of the Petersburg Railroad. One pointed south towards a crossing at Jarrett Station. This would be the longest trek, but the one farthest removed from potential Confederate interference. Another led northeast toward Reams Station, just a few miles south of the battlefields of June 22nd and 23rd. The intermediate route led north and then east to Stony Creek and a direct road that led to Prince George Courthouse and the Union left flank. Believing that any of the routes would be supported by the promised support of the Second and Sixth Corps, and ignorant of the defeat of those forces almost a week earlier, Wilson chose to head for Stony Creek. Now a handful of Confederate prisoners and some of the hundreds of contrabands that had continued to accumulate behind the Union troopers told Wilson that a battalion of infantry and a remnant of Rooney Lee's cavalry were at Stony Creek, but Wilson felt confident that he could easily overwhelm such a small force. The road from Double Bridges led to Prince George Courthouse and crossed at a place called Saponi Church. Hampton's troopers joined Chambliss's brigade at Stony Creek about the same time that Wilson had reached Double Bridges. The Confederate horsemen rode to the crossroads and engaged first Chapman's brigade and then McIntosh from late afternoon into the evening, resulting in a noisy but relatively bloodless tactical stalemate. It was evident that we were up against a sufficient force to hold both the railroad and the Stony Creek bridges and that a new route must be chosen, explained Wilson. He opted to go north to Ream Station and sent couts there during the night, escorting the huge accumulation of wagons confiscated during the raid. McIntosh and Chapman would remain behind, preventing Hampton from interfering with Couch's movement as well as holding the Confederates at bay around Saponi Church. Now the 11th Pennsylvania Cavalry led Couch's trek to Ream Station departing between midnight and 1 a.m. on June 29th. They reached the vicinity of the burned-out depot about 6 a.m. and we're talking about this position here and turned eastward toward the tracks when a blast of artillery fire greeted them. These guns had accompanied the infantry brigade of General Sanders, whose Alabamans had arrived just a few minutes earlier. Couts halted in the face of this unexpected resistance, dug in, and waited for Wilson's division to arrive. McIntosh's brigade trickled in between 8 and 10, followed by the remnants of Chapman's troopers, who had been pretty roughly handled that morning at Saponi Church. Couch briefed his superior of the presence of the infantry and artillery that blocked the route east, but reports reached the generals that by following the old stage road north, the Federals could reach Globe Tavern, uh, where they would dash for safety, presumably in proximity to the friendly infantry. Around noon, a reconnaissance by the 1st Connecticut Cavalry revealed the disheartening news that more Confederates had appeared to the north, blocking any chance of reaching Globe Tavern. These men belonged to the brigade of Mahone's division commanded by Joseph Finnegan, brigade of Floridians, who had followed Sanders to Reams Station, and Fitz Lee's cavalry division, which arrived about midday. With Sanders and, gu and the guns to the east, 
Fitz Lee and the Floridians to the north, and Hampton's horsemen looming somewhere to the southeast, Wilson had situation had become extremely dire. The Union commander recognized the crisis and ordered all of his wagons burned, directing his men to put up a show of resistance and then ride south, heading back to double bridges in the crossing at Jarrett Station, which in hindsight, of course, they should have chosen the previous day. But before he could execute this maneuver, Mahone's Alabamans and Floridians and Fitz Lee's cavalry under Williams Wickham and Lunsford Lomax swept down on Wilson. For a brief space, the confused combat ever receding went on, but fierce shouts of triumph mingled with the dismal cries of stricken men, ringing pistol shots, the clattering of cavalry carbines, the dull roar of the guns soon gave way to utter chaos. In less time than it takes me to write it, we called a federal trooper. The Confederates were in among the wagon train, capturing the ambulances and all our wounded and many who were not wounded, who had not time to escape. Now, Couts somehow found the means to locate a seam in the Confederate circle, and he rode eventually to safety. But Wilson's division found its only refuge in wholesale skedaddle south, accompanied by the frantic contingent of hundreds of runaway slaves. Reaching the narrow bridge over Stony Creek, Wilson and his staff were among the first to cross as his panicked troopers attempted to follow with Confederate horsemen in close pursuit. Some Yankees desperately endeavored to ride their horses down the steep slope and across the wide stream, many of them tumbling into the swirling water. Men and horses mingled in almost every conceivable shape, struggled to reach the opposite bank while bullets whizzed among the trees and shells screamed over our heads, remembered a New Yorker. Most of the cavalrymen managed to get away, but the frightened black refugees met a grimmer fate. Enraged by the sight of so many disloyal bondsmen, the Confederates, quote, would saber the niggers without mercy, reported an officer in the 1st Vermont Cavalry. John Gill of a Maryland Confederate unit agreed. Our men became greatly enraged and it was difficult to restrain them. It was a question of quarter or no quarter, and it was mostly no quarter. Wilson's survivors made it back to Double Bridges after dark, crossed the railroad at Jarrett's at 2 a.m. on June 30th, and by the afternoon of July 2nd, they re-entered Union lines, joining Couts' men who had arrived 36 hours earlier. Wilson's losses during the raid numbered 1,445 men, about 25% of his whole force. In addition, the Federals lost all 12 of their guns at Ream Station and 30 wagons, 5,000 of their mounts never made it back. The Confederates suffered 410 losses while resisting the raid, most of them sustained at Saponi Church and Ream Station. The runaway slaves who survived the slaughter marched to Petersburg, where their owners reclaimed them and placed them back in bondage. Grant pronounced the raid of great importance, and indeed the troopers had inflicted significant damage to the Confederate transportation infrastructure. The men who endured the 10-day ordeal, however, had a different take than the General-in-Chief. I would not go on another such raid for $2,000 cash and pray we may never be sent again while my time lasts, stated a man in the 3rd Indiana. The Confederates harbored no such ambivalence, as one Virginian declared that the campaign resulted in, quote, the absolute squanderation of Wilson's whole command. Confederate engineers and work crews restored service on the Petersburg Railroad by July 12th and on the Richmond and Danville line shortly thereafter, although 
service on the south side trains did not resume for about a month. Sheridan came under scrutiny for failing to move quickly enough to offer Wilson any aid, and similarly, Union soldiers from the 6th Corps arrived at Reams Station in time, only to fire a few parting shots at Finnegan's Floridians. Contrary to the premise of the operation, the Army of the Potomac offered absolutely no support to Wilson. When combined with the disaster experienced by the 2nd Corps on June 22nd and the defeat of Wright's men the following day, the Wilson Couch Raid marked the low point in Grant's 1864 campaign. Meade was so discouraged that he advocated for the commencement of formal siege operations. Grant agreed, but only for 36 hours, when he began contemplating a new offensive north of the James, since Butler's effort to establish a beachhead at Deep Bottom had been the only successful aspect of the second offensive. Meanwhile, in front of a Confederate fort southeast of Petersburg, a regiment filled with Pennsylvania miners were digging a tunnel. But that's a subject for a different talk. Thank you. We certainly have time for questions. Were the Couts Wilson Raiders armed with repeating carbines? If so, this was the only modernized federal cavalry failure, wasn't it? Well, I don't know if it would be the only one. I think people would argue that Trevilian Station earlier that month was another Union failure. Most of the Union cavalry did have Spencers. Not all of them, but most of them did. But recall that, you know, this is, of course, not intended to be a fixed battle. This was a railroad raiding operation, and without the Union infantry there to protect them on the way back, it was pretty well doomed. When you say they destroyed the roads, were you hyphening railroads, or do you mean? Rail yes, they destroyed the railroads, yeah, the okay. railroads. Right, that was a, a pretty typical shorthand. If you read Civil War correspondence, the soldiers referred to railroads as roads almost always. And of course that was, I mean, you could argue that there was some success. It did, reading the Confederate literature of the time, there were some supply problems for several weeks for the Army of Northern Virginia as all of their supply lines into Richmond and Petersburg were damaged. So it did have a temporary effect on the Confederate uh, ability to sustain themselves, not a permanent one. Did the uh, Confederate cavalry just take better care of their horses, or did they have better means of resupply? That's really a great question. They, there were problems with the Confederate horses. In fact, Deering's brigade basically was out of the action for three or four days to rest their horses. Rooney Lee had to rest the horses quite a bit. So no, they had some problems as well. If you think about what we talked about here this evening, Confederate cavalry really didn't do a whole heck of a lot. After that attack at the Grove, very early on in the raid, they were basically harassing. You know, they were in the rear, and they were also serving as a blocking force so that Wilson couldn't turn back to the north. So they weren't involved in charges, the sorts of things that would wear out horse flesh. You know, this is the case with a lot of late war action, that the Confederate sources are just not as plentiful. And I've scoured my manuscript bibliography for this Petersburg project is 495 pages long. So I've looked at a lot of material, and there's just not a whole lot from Rudy Lee's people 
and Behringer's people. But the best I can tell is, yes, the horses needed to be rested, and yes, some of them wore out, and yes, they had to take some from the local people, but generally they did a little bit better than the Federals. Of course, there's a mental aspect, you know, it's much better to be the guy chasing than the one being chased. And the Federals didn't know where they were going. Sometimes they would change the road signs, and there were three or four mile wild goose chases, they went down the wrong roads. That part of Virginia was not ambivalent about what side they, that, that was pro-Confederate countryside. Southside Virginia was very much pro-Confederate. Yeah, I had a question regarding at this time you're talking about versus later. Did it get more and more difficult for the Confederates to move in and out, in and out? It seemed like I read things about Petersburg where I don't even understand exactly how the railroads moved in and out right. despite the fact that the city was under siege. When you say move in and out, maybe could you clarify what you mean by that? Well, military movements or supply movements or, okay. you know, the, the, the vision we have, uh, as you said, we don't know, I don't know a lot of detail about Petersburg. Okay. Uh, the vision you have is the city's under siege and how did the railroads move in and out? Well, they? up until the end of the Petersburg campaign, and you notice that I don't usually call it a siege. You know, now Dick Summers, and some of you all know Dick Summers. Dick and I have been friends and colleagues on Petersburg for decades, and we have this friendly argument about whether Petersburg was a siege or a campaign. And you can make an argument on both sides. Really, we kind of have fun with it. But a siege, to me, incorporates a couple of factors. It means that you are completely envelop an enemy army, like at Vicksburg, for example, or Port Hudson, and that you institute formal siege operations like Meade wanted to do and Grant told him he could for 36 hours and then said no, which is digging saps and approaches and zigzag trenches and so forth. At any rate, to address your question, Confederate supplies continued to run until the fourth offensive in August when the Union Fifth Corps, aided by the Union Ninth Corps, was able to sever the Petersburg Weldon Railroad around this place I mentioned called Globe Tavern, about four to five miles south of the city and about three miles south of the Confederate lines. Now, what did Lee do to react to that? He took the trains up from the Carolinas as far as the Stony Creek Station that appears in the second offensive, unloads the supplies at Stony Creek, puts them on wagons, takes them cross country on a road called the Flatfoot Road into Dinwiddie Courthouse and then up the Boyden Plank Road, which was a major highway into Petersburg. So he compensated for the loss of that railroad. But from that point on, Grant is intent on capturing the Southside Railroad, the railroad that runs west to Lynchburg, and that portion of untouched Virginia. And it would not be until April 2nd that Grant would capture the Southside Railroad. Now, another aspect of your question might be on these Confederate offensives. Probably more detail than you need, and we could go into a lot more detail, but you notice that the Confederates make these attacks, but then they fall back. One of their great victories was on August 25th at the Second Battle of Ream Station, the more famous of the two Ream Station actions, where A.P. Hill's Corps comes down with 13 brigades on August 25th and severely punishes the two divisions of the Second Corps that are tearing up that railroad around Ream Station. Great Confederate victory. 
but they couldn't stay. They had to go back to their main lines. So this is all that Lee can really do is try to prevent the Federals from cutting off those supply lines. And all that Grant can do is keep going after those supply lines. Now that sounds like a pedestrian and kind of dull, methodical operation that doesn't capture the imagination of most readers or visitors, but they result in these massive battles about which nobody knows much. Now, I would say that this thing about the second offensive with the second and sixth corps that we talked about tonight does not have a monograph. Nobody has written about it. The only thing that's really at all an attempt at describing this is an essay that Ed Barsh wrote for the Park Service as a research document back in the 60s, and it was published amongst a group of Ed's essays in a book by Savas Beatty. But how many of you were familiar with Jerusalem Plank Road? And so about four or five out of 50, you know, that's pretty much the case. Hampton's book on the sixth offense, the battle of either called Boyden Plank Road or Hatcher's Run, huge battle, and always accompanied by actions north of the James. See, that's the other thing now. I mentioned just in passing that Butler is able to establish a bridgehead north of the James River as a part of this operation. He has a brigade over there, but all the other offensives now, Grant is going to throw a right hook north of the James towards that portion of the Confederate lines and a left hook trying to get around Lee's right flank south of the Appomattox River. He's going to do it simultaneously because he has, what, the advantage of superior numbers. He can afford to withdraw a corps or two from his lines, still hold his lines firm, and go on the offensive. Lee can't do that. Lee has to always react. And he does so with William Mahone on October 27th. He does so throughout the entire Petersburg. Mahone is always the one who's counter-punching and doing a good job in stopping these federal offensives. But in most cases, what happens is the Federals are stopped, but they expand their lines. Three miles, four miles, they expand their lines. They dig in and force Lee to do what? Extend his lines. And as Lee's army gets smaller, his defense becomes thinner, but it's going to take nine months to get him so thin that Grant is willing to risk another frontal attack. And that risk is taken on April 2nd, 1865, literally the last day of the campaign. So Lee is doing the best he can. I don't think you can criticize Lee. And people say, well, is, uh, Petersburg is a fait accompli. Who cares about Petersburg? Once, you know, there's this quote. I bet most of you have read this quote where Lee uh, allegedly says to Jubal Early, if the armies get across the James, it will become a siege, and then it will be a mere question of time. I see nodded heads. That, that's repeated often. Now, if you look at the source of that, mm, I'm a little skeptical whether that conversation ever took place. But that has imbued the whole Petersburg story with a sense of inevitability. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, maybe we can agree. But for the soldiers who were, and the officers who were fighting at Petersburg, there was no inevitability. And after this offensive, 
if you would have taken a poll, and the correspondence will support this, Union morale was in the dumps. And Confederate morale was, they'll never beat us. They'll never beat us. And they're going to give up, especially if Lincoln loses the election. We win. So I don't fall into the trap, I think it's a trap, of assuming that what happened at Petersburg, the 80,000 casualties at Petersburg are meaningless. I think there was contingency at Petersburg, at least until the election. Now, once Lincoln gets reelected, uh, and there's no question that the federal forces are going to pursue this campaign until the end, I think at that point, at that point, we might all agree that there's no way the Confederates are going to emerge victorious. But up until then, I'd argue that there was contingency. Could you talk a minute about the desertion problem that plagued the Southern Army? The desertion problem was serious, but not as draconian as it has sometimes been presented. And what I mean by that is the heavy desertion in the Army of Northern Virginia really began in the winter of 1865. Now, it was, there was desertion before that, to be sure. But where the Union correspondents write, 15 Johnnies came into our line last night, 70 Johnnies came in on our brigade front last night, that really is going to take place in January, February, and the first week of March. Now, was it unprecedented in the Army of Northern Virginia? Absolutely never had experienced desertion at that level. Was it crippling? Was it the sort of thing that meant the Army of Northern Virginia was no longer viable? I would argue no. Perhaps one out of 12 Confederate soldiers deserted. I mean, some of the lost cause mythology will say that the desertion was the reason that the Confederates lost. Like many of us, I think, it used to be very harsh judging desertion. How can you leave your comrades behind? And then I read a letter from a woman in North Carolina who wrote her husband, her soldier husband, and said, John, I've always been proud of you for being a soldier and defending our country, but so help me God, John, if you don't come home, I will starve and the baby will die. Not too many American soldiers have been faced with that choice. And that, to me, mitigates a little bit the reason these fellows, some of them deserted. Yes? We heard from another speaker that at one point the casualties on the Union side at this point in the war became so numerous that they stopped reporting them back to Washington and they stopped publishing them in the newspaper because of concerns that the Union population would lose faith. So they stopped reporting those casualties. Does that yeah, ring true? Th that happened, you know, in some cases, yes. In some cases it did. I read a letter the other day. I was at the Huntington Library in the last two weeks in California. They have a wonderful collection of Civil War stuff out there. And I read about one soldier who wrote home and said that all this nonsense that you read in the newspapers about how everything is going well and the morale in the Army is high is just whistling past the graveyard. He said the Army's morale is terrible and we've lost so many men. Now, of course, when Lincoln institutes that big draft in the summer of 1864, supposedly 500,000 men, the Army of the Potomac swells back almost to full strength. But it's done so with these substitutes and bounty men. 
and we talk about desertion, scores of Union soldiers were deserting at this, it was kind of like a two-way street, you know, they, they'd shake hands as they go by, because these were men who were not in it for the cause, they were in it for the money and they couldn't wait to get away. And one thing that, that I learned, maybe you all knew this, but by the fall of 1864 and through the entire winter, Friday was execution day in the Army of the Potomac. And every Friday, every Friday, they'd hang or shoot deserters, and sometimes in fairly large numbers. I don't know if anybody can enlighten me. I've never been able to determine what the difference was, what made some of these fellows have capital punishment by hanging and others by firing squad. I don't see a pattern of why some are hung and some are shot, but a lot of them were. And the Confederates would execute deserters as well if they could catch them. My question is that uh, you say the reason why they continued the war was because Lincoln won, but I kind of question what kind of a politician could get up there and after taking all the casualties they did for three years say, oh well, let them go, they've been good boys. I just can't see a politician getting away with that. But, uh, what politician are we talking about? I'm saying in the North, what politician could get away with well, saying, well, they, if you're talking about the Democrats, you know, yeah. that, was a, that was a huge issue in the Army of the Potomac. And I just read letters today at the Library of Congress. One fellow, he likes McClellan. A lot of these guys like McClellan. They still like McClellan. But they could not abide the Chicago platform, the Democratic platform, talking about negotiating a peace. And they really couldn't stand the vice presidential nominee on the Democratic ticket, which is a man named George Pendleton who was a copperhead. And so the Democrats nominated this war hero, McClellan, on a what the soldiers perceived as a peace platform. McClellan denied that. He came out with a statement and denied that he would negotiate a peace, that victory for the Union was his position. But he could not overcome the platform and he could not overcome the vice presidential candidate. I don't know how often vice presidential candidates influence elections significantly but if you're polling the Army of the Potomac, George Pendleton cost McClellan a lot of votes. And the Army voted about 80% for Lincoln. They saw Lincoln as the man who would validate everything they had done. To leave those thousands of their comrades behind on battlefields dead or maimed and then give up with a less than honorable peace. They always talked about honorable peace was unpalatable to them and therefore McClellan got trounced in the army. And the army, of course, won the election for Lincoln. And the Republicans and the government did everything they could to manipulate the system so that the soldiers could vote. Wasn't there a certain amount of resilience in the Union Army that you're downplaying a little bit? You see them take huge casualties, yet they come back and they win. And I've read a lot about the Union Army in the West where my ancestors fought. They took severe casualties around Atlanta and all those areas, yet they come back and they win consistently. So it seems to me that even though they would take these casualties and the morale would be low, they would come back. I, I couldn't agree more with your, with your assessment. And there's a book, Steve Soderholm, what's, what's his last name, has written a book on the Union Army in 1864, the Army of the Potomac, and he argues just what you say. Maybe he goes even farther and says that the Petersburg campaign 
invigorated the army because it provided a break from this constant combat of the overland campaign through June 23rd and gave them a chance to rebuild themselves. It's a matter of degrees. When we talk about low morale, it's a matter of degrees. Morale was as low as it was going to get, but that's not to say that the whole army was ready to give up. Not at all. I agree with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.